0: i
1: Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. This is a Wednesday morning edition of your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. And this morning, we are continuing our series from a barrel wine on the United States and its Jews. This lecture is entitled Wealth, Position, and Accomplishment. Uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or rabbiwine.com. So
2: last week I discussed with you the original waves of Jewish immigration to the United States. Colonial times in the 1840s, and then finally beginning in the 1870s, the great wave of emigration from Central and Eastern Europe. Uh... Which uh, brought two and a half million Jews to the United States. The great turning point in the beginning of the 20th century, not only for the world but for the Jewish people, was uh, World War I, First World War. Even till today, uh, in many parts in England and in France, Uh, It's called the Great War. Because there never was a war like it before in human history. It was a war that consumed uh, over 20 million people. And it was a war that destroyed all of the established empires that existed in Europe. And it was a war that uh, 250,000 Jews approximately died in that war, most of them civilians. But there were great Jewish losses in the German army. Over 12,500 Jews died fighting for the fatherland. There were uh, Jews in the French army, Jews in the British army, and at the end, Jews in the American Army, many Jews in the American Army. And uh, the war upset everything. And the war brought about the communist revolution in Russia and converted it to the Soviet Union. Our Jews were very prominent in that revolution. It has to be remembered. Uh, And it had the consequences, and it had consequences in the United States. And because of this destruction throughout Europe, all the yeshivas were forced into exile or closed. The Hasidic courts were disbanded. The whole Jewish infrastructure was completely wiped out. And you had new countries that became independent, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Finland, for a period of time, Ukraine. The common denominator in all the new countries was anti-Semitism. It was a fierce nationalism, and because they were afraid that all the Jews were Bolsheviks, so it doesn't take much to fan the flames of anti-Semitism which are always simmering below the surface. And when things happened, then all of a sudden uh, they burst into flame. Now, the great uh, victor in the war was the United States. It suffered the least. The war was not fought on its territory. Uh, Britain lost 900,000 men were killed. A whole generation. France lost 4 million men killed. Germany lost five million men killed and then you had Russia and all of the other countries the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So uh, those people who were stuck in Europe, the Europeans, uh, a great percentage of them wanted to leave. They had enough for Europe and America turned isolationist. Uh, Woodrow Wilson could not convince the United States to join the League of Nations. Uh, America had 180,000 dead from the war. It was not interested in Europe. It was not interested in helping Europe. It was not interested in Europeans. Europeans. But American from 1919 to 1924, the United States had an open door. There were no immigration restrictions. So therefore, a very large number of people from Italy and Sicily came to the United States. A very large number of Poles came to the United States. People from all over Europe came, and this initiated this second great wave of immigration of Jews to the United States, especially Eastern European Jews. In 1919, there was a Secretary of State in the United States by the name of Palmer, who was a rabid anti-Semite. And you have to realize that anti-Semitism in the United States was open. For a long time, it's been very clandestine. And now it's becoming, again, more open. But it always was there. But it wasn't government. Now, he uh, initiated what he called the Red Scare. The Western world was deathly afraid of the Bolshevik revolution. And the Bolsheviks advertised that they're going to spread the revolution throughout the world. And they said they're the wave of the future. And in the United States, there was a portion of the population that was very leftist was anarchist. They brought that over from Europe. And the Jews in the United States were viewed as being communists. So when the Red Scare began, I mean, the, the Jewish Daily Forward had on its masthead, Workers of the World Unite. It published on Shabbos, and it was the Bible for the Yiddish-speaking Jews in the United States. And Jews somehow, because of the fact that we were always trained to respect the holiness of words and of books, Jews regarded newspapers as being holy. That still exists till our time, right? You've got to have the New York Times. I can't go to work without reading the New York Times. The New York Times is holy. So too, uh, there was a Jewish communist newspaper in the United States called the Freiheit, Freedom. Now the communists co-opted all of the nice words that existed in the language. They were progressive, their enemies were reactionary. The word itself defines already the person. They're forward-looking, they're the wave of the future, they're utopia, in fact, uh, you say someone is conservative, that's not the very popular way to describe anybody. Liberal, wow, positive word. Progressive is even a more positive word. The left had the genius of always co opting the positive message, even though it itself was regressive, totalitarian, dictatorial, and murderous. So, because of the Red Scare, by 1924, Uh, Congress passed a restrictive immigration law. Now the law did not say no Jews. But the law put a quota of how many immigrants would be allowed from certain countries in the world. All of this is familiar to us, right? In our time, uh, we've passed through this or are passing through it always so a problem. The areas that were limited in immigration were areas where Jews lived. Poland, the Baltic States, certainly the Soviet Union, Central Europe, they had very small quotas. And that was to prevent the fact that without those quotas maybe another million, million and a half Jews would have come to the United States. People say, well, why didn't they come? Why didn't they leave? The answer is there was nowhere they could leave to. You have to have somewhere that you can leave to. Someone to let you in. So uh, a large Jewish population in Eastern Europe is bottled up there's nowhere they can go. Now, 50,000 a year went to America. So 50,000 a year would uh, add up to a half a million. But that left uh, millions and millions and millions of Jews in Eastern Europe. Now, in the Orthodox world, as I began to explain last week, uh, there was great opposition to any type of immigration. We'll say, well, why didn't they go to Palestine? The uh, Balfour Declaration was enforced then. Britain had no quota until 1926. There was no quota at all. Anybody could come to Palestine. As late as 1929, it still was easy to get certificates to come well how could they come to Palestine when Palestine was being run by the leftists when it was secular to the core it was anti-religious to the core and they couldn't go to the United States because the United States not only was the golden in Medina it was the trade in Medina so where are they going to go? So they tried to rebuild themselves in Eastern Europe. Not with very great success. Uh, in the 1930s, 70% of all Jewish children in Poland went either to Catholic or public schools. All the legends that are circulating. And all the books and all the magazine articles, and how wonderful it was back then. It was heaven, right? People were poor, but they were happy. They loved it. It was a Jewish life. That's all baloney. It was terrible. Jews faced rampant anti-Semitism that was violent. And Jews got pulled off of trains in Poland and were beaten up or were killed. Nobody ever went to jail in Lithuania for killing a Jew. And they were poor. And a great many of them were radicalized. And therefore they were tired Uh, with the label of being Bolsheviks. So, in the United States, when this second wave came, uh, they came to a very difficult society. A society that did not accept them, that was suspicious of them, and generally was anti-immigrant, and certainly anti-Jewish. Now, in the United States, after the First World War, the First World War was a traumatic experience for the United States. So, in the United States, there was an organization called the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan was founded in the South after the American Civil War. After the American Civil War, for a period of eight years, the Republican government, and uh, Andrew Johnson, who was impeached, and then uh, uh, Ulysses Grant, who was the great Civil War hero, but was a very corrupt president. I mean, if you look at American history, uh, you're not so nervous about what's going on, because Uh, The country should have fallen apart long ago. And somehow, uh, you know, we survived it. Uh, So uh, this uh, group mainly composed of southern veterans of the Confederate Army. Uh, The Republicans attempted uh, they called it Reconstruction. And Reconstruction was they were going to force civil rights on the population. So uh, there were uh, uh, former Negro slaves that became senators in the United States Senate because they arranged the vote in such a way that that's what had to happen. This caused a tremendous reaction against it. Again, uh, it's very hard to reform a country socially from the top down. We have that experience, and the United States is going through that experience as well. And they formed this group called the Ku Klux Klan, And the uh, object of the group originally was to terrorize the former slaves so that they would not feel that they were full citizens, they would have no rights, and to segregate them. That was called Jim Crow and this uh, from 1870 till 1960s was how America was, was segregated and uh, there were lynchings. Uh, The Ku Klux Klan marched through the streets. They wore hoods and all sorts of costumes. They burned crosses on the lawn. Uh, Their leader was called the Grand Dragon. And they were very, very popular, and they had a lot of followers, and they were very active in the 1920s and 1930s. They expanded their horizon. Not only were they against the blacks, they became anti-Catholic as well, which basically was anti-Irish and anti-Italian because they were against foreigners. And then uh, the golden nugget fell into their lap. Uh, they, they They were the leaders against the Jews. Now Jews lived throughout the United States. They lived in the South. Jews had fought with the Confederates on behalf of the southern states. The uh, Secretary of State for the Confederacy was Judah P. Benjamin and the Jews were prominent in uh, Confederate politics and office, but that didn't help them. It never helps you. And especially now that Jews were seen to be communists Jews were seen to be leftists and the whole country, uh, I mean, uh, I lived through the McCarthy era in the 1950s and it was really uh, frightening. And Jews then also hunkered down and had a low profile because all the atomic spies were Jews who spied for Russia. And Trotsky said it very well. Trotsky's real name was Bronstein. So he said Trotsky makes the revolution, but Bronstein pays the price. So in the 1920s, the Jews in the United States were faced with very difficult problems. So they used a number of avenues to try and get out of these problems. One avenue was to become more like the American Christians and less like the Eastern European Jews. So in the United States, for instance, the Reformed temples had services on Sunday, but they were closed on Saturday. I remember even when I was growing up, the uh, Temple Shalom on Lakeshore Drive which was the biggest and fanciest Reformed Temple in Chicago had services only on Sunday. Temple Emmanuel was the organ of the choir. We're going to be just like everybody else. We have to somehow lose our identity. If we lose our identity nobody will know who we are and they'll leave us alone and we'll be able to be successful here. The second way was the American Public School, how the American Public School preached integration, the melting pot, but the melting pot was Christian civilization. It was the celebration of Christmas and New Year's and Easter you never got off for the Jewish holidays. It was anti-American. I remember yet uh, when I went to public school in the 1940s, still was that way. And even though uh, our school on the west side of Chicago had a 98% Jewish population, Christmas was Christmas and Easter was Easter, Rosh Hashanah, there was school, and if you didn't show up, the teacher, because most of the teachers were not Jewish at all, far from it, and they would, uh, how come you missed two days? And then they would say, uh, but there are other Jews in the class, and they came, which always happened, and you had no good answer for that. <laughs> it's what Paro said: Nirpimatem, Nirpimatem, You're lazy. Every year, every, every month, you have another holiday. So there was a great pressure to become somehow." American And becoming American meant going to school. And going to school when they wanted you to go to school. And under conditions that they wanted you to go to school. And there were no Jewish schools. There were afternoon Hebrew schools. Which everyone hated attending. Because after you're done with public school at 3 in the afternoon. To go sit for another 3 hours and in the Hebrew school it was not very attractive. So they're developed in the 1920s and it carried over for almost a century Uh, the industry called Bar Mitzvah. There was a tacit agreement. You go to the afternoon school if you're a boy. Girls were free Completely. That was the first of women's lib. They didn't have to go at all. But the boys had to go until they were bar mitzvah. And the last two years in the afternoon school was to prepare you for bar mitzvah. And preparation for bar mitzvah then was uh, to be able to uh, Read the Haftorah in Hebrew and to deliver a speech. You know, the famous today I am a man, today I am a fountain pen speech. And uh, it became a rite of passage. But after Bar Mitzvah, you were free. You could do whatever you want. Uh, So for many... uh, Many people put on film once in their lifetime. Then they put the film back in the drawer. So that was the second problem. The school couldn't do it. Because there were no schools. And there were no people uh, stubborn enough to try and create them. And basically the Jewish community was not yet wealthy. And to create the a school system you need money and lots of money. The third way that Jews integrated in the 1920s was through the media. Jews somehow the field that they pioneered in the United States and that they were most successful in and most influential in was the entertainment industry. The Jews uh, became the owners of radio. Now, uh, in our time, radio exists, but uh, its role is far different. In my time, radio meant that you sat down with the family at uh, after supper and until 9 or 10 o'clock you listened to the radio. That was American. And the radio stations were controlled by Jews. So you had William Paley, who was the son of a cigar maker from Philadelphia. And the name was Paley and it became Paley. So he created the CBS Columbia Broadcasting System Network. And then you had uh, Colonel Sarnoff who created the National Broadcasting System, NBC. Against the Jewish networks there were two networks. One was called the Mutual Broadcasting Network which uh, was uh, pretty much uh, openly anti-Jewish. Uh, they for instance uh, the anti-semitic priest from Detroit Father Coughlin so he had a radio program every Sunday he had millions of listeners and it was pure anti-semitism on the radio and they was on the mutual broadcasting system and then there were other media outlets that were uh, against the immigrants and against the Jews. But what happened was that the Jewish radio outlets portrayed an America that did not exist. They portrayed an America the way they dreamt that it should exist. So they had all sorts of interesting programs. They had Jewish comedians and uh, Jewish entertainers. And the Jews were always in the entertainment business. We're going to get to the movies in a minute. But uh, the Jewish theater was alive and well. And many of the great actors in the Jewish theater later went on to become great actors in Hollywood as well. Paul Muni and others. And uh, you had uh, great uh, chazonim, great cantors. Now in our time, um, cantors have had a revival somewhat, especially here in Israel. But in the United States, they had Yossel Rosenblatt. Yossel Rosenblatt made movies. He performed at the Metropolitan Opera. And he was an observant Jew, he has descendants that are rabbis in America, and you had all sorts of, you had Moshe and they were all famous, but they were famous not as Chazonim, but as entertainers, and uh, therefore you had people like Al Jolson, uh, who uh, began as a chazan but was an entertainer and then a big star? You know, Al Jolson is buried, there's a cemetery in Los Angeles called Forest Lawn. It's one of the tourist sites. Instance, there's a guy there, and I want to be buried in his car. He had a Rolls. So he's buried in his car vertically. And there are other such outlandish things there. But one of the things, Jolson is buried there. And Jolson has a record, a recording of him singing Kol Nidre all the time. The movie industry was completely dominated by Jews, and they were the ones that really changed American culture, and they created, again, an imaginary America. An America where everything is good, and everybody is lovable and things are wonderful. And they created it, and they made a fortune on it, and they spread it, and it became the great uh, American export to the world, so that the world thought that that's what America was. And you had Jewish songwriters like Irving Berlin and uh, Cole Porter and others who created Tin Pan Alley and all of those songs were to promote America God bless America that's a Jewish creation I'm dreaming of a white Christmas as as Jewish (laughs) the Jews did it and the non-Jewish world in the United States was not unaware of this and again, from the beginning, all Jewish media was basically leftist. Now it was a time when people believed in socialism and communism. They really thought it was going to work. And they looked at the inequalities that existed in American society. And every society has inequalities because we're not all the same, and we don't all have the same talents and abilities. And they wanted to correct it. And therefore the movies became a propaganda instrument about fearless people fighting for rights, fighting for equality, and fighting for these dreams. Now, in the 1920s, uh, most of America didn't have electricity yet. The uh, farmlands were all lit by fire, by uh, lanterns. So the media became based on the two coasts in the United States, which was where The majority of Jews eventually ended up. New York was very Jewish. And to a certain extent, the Jews were the ones that pushed California. Hollywood moved to California, the movie industry. And uh, it's not accidental that that still exists in the United States today. You have... uh, Uh, the uh, coast, the east coast and the west coast are of one political view and then the whole center of the country is of a different political view. So that was the third way. Through entertainment. You know, and there were stars Eddie Cantor and then later Jack Benny and these are all Jewish comedians. Now, the tradition of Jewish comedians lasted till our time, I mean, Seinfeld is all Jewish jokes. It's all the jokes that were on the Borscht Belt, refined and put into a different setting, but that's what it is. And the Jewish comedy writers, the ones who wrote the jokes, were the ones that were involved in all the shows. But it was an absolute requirement that you were going to sit up and listen to the radio. Now, my my father, a blessed memory, wanted to listen to the radio because he wanted to improve his English. He became an excellent orator in English, taught himself English, took a correspondence school course because he saw that the membership in the shul, the Yiddish-speaking membership was evaporating and that he had to speak to, the, uh, to a different generation. But many of the older rabbis were unable to do that. Uh, and therefore they became dinosaurs. Even though they were great Torah scholars and great leaders, but they were irrelevant to the growing American Jewish community. Then the Great Depression occurred. Just as the First World War was a traumatic event, especially for Europe, the Great Depression was a traumatic experience that left its mark on American society almost till our day. And uh, you're talking about uh, 30% of American workers had no jobs. There was no unemployment insurance. There's no social security. There's no safety net. What were the causes of the Great Depression I took a course once in college and I came to the conclusion that nobody knew what the causes were. Because had they known what the causes were, perhaps they could have prevented it. And economics and the wave of economics, uh, boom and bust, all uh, really are mysterious even to the experts. So because of the depression, People felt that capitalism was a bust. And the Soviet Union looked more and more attractive. And the Jewish Communist Party in the United States grew exponentially. Because it said it had the solution. Now, Stalin was a murderer, but nobody knew it. Or nobody admitted it. Stalin, at the end of the 1920s, Started his collectivization program. He starved five million people in the Ukraine to death Purposely they confiscated every kernel of grain Nobody knew it The New York Times wrote about uh, Stalin that he was uh, He was the greatest person in the world Russia was the wave of the future The guy that wrote that covered Uh, Russia for the New York Times I forgot his name Walter Durant Durant, right so he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on Russia it it wasn't even fake news it was beyond fake news all made up but that was the impression and the Jews bought into it And a lot of religious Jews bought into it. I remember my father's shul in Chicago. There were a lot of communists. They came to Davin in the morning. But they were all committed to the fact that the Soviet Union was right. Because the Depression destroyed families, people. It was... So I, I, you know, like we—I don't know how to describe it. But when you grow up and you don't have, so that's different than when you grow up and you do have. So I look at my grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and they lack Bora Hashem nothing. So therefore, they're picky eaters. They don't like this toy. This dress is not nice enough. And if they lose their winter coat, so you buy another one. I come from a generation, I always said it, that we wore the same hat and the same tie from the time we were bar mitzvah to the wedding. Then if you lost your overcoat, then you were cold in the Chicago winter, and that was it. And my wife... uh, Jackie, let's remember, so she grew up in that time, too. She was in Europe yet, so she knew what poverty was. And we would wonder together. I had a class for young boys, Shabbos afternoon in my home. I had it for 20 years in Muncie. One class was for third, fourth, and fifth, and the next class was sixth, seventh, and eighth. At the end of the class, I would give the, each one a candy. That was the... So I had guys that cheat. that They stayed for the second class, too, to get another candy. <laughs> At the end of the season, I had a collection in my closet. 30, 40 overcoats. <laughs> jackets. <coughs> Shaki would say, do well, they have any parents? I mean, when a kid comes home without his overcoat, yeah, no problem. He comes home without his overcoat, buy him another overcoat. And we don't want to... I, I remember once I made the announcement in shul that I have a collection of, I think, 32 overcoats the uh, size this to this to this. And... Uh, If the rightful owners will uh, step forward, I'll be glad to give it to them. And a guy stood up in the back and said, Rabbi, keep them. They're all for you. (laughs) But in the Depression, you couldn't say that. I found out later that in the Depression, uh, we had a grocery man. I remember his name was Lightman. find you, He was a member of my father's shul. He was closed on Shabbos. That's uh, so in the depression he would give my mother an extra you know piece of bread. A loaf of bread. Not charger. Because he didn't want that the rabbis shouldn't have. And thus that was a treasure. We didn't even know that. And the depression lasted until the war the second world war began. It was only the second world war that boosted America out of the depression. And the fable is that the New Deal did it. But the New Deal didn't do it. The Depression continued throughout the 1930s. And it had a serious effect on American Jewry. It turned it left. And it made people very, very uncertain. You couldn't, you know... So nobody owned a home. Nobody aspired to own a home. And you were at the mercy of the landlord. And whether he gave you heat in the winter or not was always questionable. But that's the way it was. That's the way we grew up. Now, because of all of this, I don't know how to put this nicely, but the Jewish people don't react well to such long-term adversity. They look Nobody does. We look for a way out. And uh, many people blamed all of this on the fact that the Jews were old-fashioned. They didn't integrate. They held on to their own ways. And so uh, traditional Judaism was, uh, to a great extent, uh, felt to be completely irrelevant to American Jewish life. It could be the immigrants that came over from Europe, they still hung on to it because they had no choice. They were too old to change their ways, but their children and grandchildren were not interested. We're not going to go for it. And orthodoxy had no tools to be able to deal with it. You could speak against the American public school system all day and all night, but the end of the day is you have to send your child to school. You have to send them to the public school. Where are they going to go? And so uh, then you had the Ku Klux Klan on your head and then uh, the Messiah arrived Franklin Roosevelt. Now Roosevelt did not solve the depression but he spoke as though he did and he uh, had a flurry of governmental activities make work jobs, all sorts of things, and the Jewish people became Roosevelt's acolytes in every respect. He was God. He could do no wrong. Whether or not his policies worked or didn't work made no difference. And it's interesting, the Democratic Party then was the party of the anti-Semites. You had the senators from Mississippi, Eastland and Bilbo, and you had others that were openly and that had made anti-Semitic speeches on the floor of the United States Senate, and they were the supporters of Roosevelt, and the Jews were the supporters of Roosevelt. All of this is not enough In 1933, Hitler comes to power. Everybody thought that Hitler was a passing phenomenon, couldn't last. He was a ludicrous figure. Everybody realized he was a madman and nothing's going to be. But they were wrong. And in the United States, there was a very strong, large German American population, and concentrated in cities like Milwaukee and Chicago, but throughout many urban areas. And the German American community uh, created uh, parties, political parties that basically supported Hitler. It was called the German-American Bund. They, I, I, I remember that as a child, there was a rally in the Chicago Stadium. There the head of the German-American Bund, a man by the name of Fritz Kuhn, he got up and spoke. It was like Hitler, except he spoke in English. And they had Nazi armbands and they marched with the Nazi flags in the street. And it was all, you know, it's freedom of assembly, you can say whatever you want. Freedom of speech. And the Jewish community really felt threatened. And then on top of it, uh, the, uh, uh, one of my earliest memories is our family listening to Hitler's rants on the radio? And my parents would weep, and I, I didn't understand what was going on. I was six or seven, I didn't know what the problem was. And who was this guy that was screaming in a language that I didn't know? And once in a while, I heard a word because I knew Yiddish, and I would say to my father, Is he Jewish? <laughs> And one of the earliest English words that I ever learned was affidavit. Because in the house they kept on talking. My father worked to get affidavits to bring over his family from Lithuania to the United States. And in order to get in the immigration, he had to find them a job, and it was all sorts of things and you needed all these affidavits, and I know what an affidavit was, but he never was able to bring them over. And naturally, they perished. And uh, this story was repeated thousands of times. And I remember uh, there was a, a a friend of our family who was an illegal immigrant. Somehow he got into the United States. Now all of his life, you know, he, when he saw a policeman, he ran the other way. He lived a life of terror. So it was not a hospitable society. He had a lot of problems. But the Jews in America realized that they're better off being in America than if they would be in Europe. That much they understood. In uh, 1929, the great Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Shimon Shkob, who was the Rosh Yeshiva in Grodne, came to Yeshiva Surabino Yitzchak Hanan, the Ritz in New York, for two years to deliver lectures in Talmud and my father was one of his students so in 1929 Rabbi Shkop told my father you should know Europe is oiz that was his word, Europe is all played out he said the future is either here or in the land of Israel but Europe is done and Chocham Adif Minovi Uh, a wise man is greater than a prophet and he was unfortunately completely correct so uh, American Jewry had grown like 4.5 million Jews in America and America then didn't have 300 million people had only 120 million people so uh, the Jews were 3% of the population and the Jewish vote meant something. Today, a Jewish vote is minuscule. There are more Muslims in America than Jews. But uh, the Jews in America hoped for the best and trusted in Roosevelt. And so next time we'll discuss what happened in the late 1930s and the Second World War and its immediate aftermath, which really changed the face of American Jewry completely.
1: J.M. and the A.M. Rabbi Beryl Wine, in the series of the United States and its Jews, and uh, that is the lecture entitled Wealth, Position, and Accomplishment. Orthodoxy is going to be his uh, next topic, which will begin in the 7 o'clock hour coming up right here at J.M. and the A.M. Also, Rabbi Wine just alluded to the, um, in the lecture, alluded to the Jewish vote, and, uh, I don't even know how to, um, encourage people to get out and vote. Uh, but I had a discussion with somebody the other day about the, uh, new district that's been formulated in lower Manhattan and, um, and, uh, Borough Park, Brooklyn. Uh, it's a new congressional district. It's a house district that uh, I'll be voting in. Um, and, um, the vote, the primary, is August the 23rd, and I was in discussion with somebody who really knows what's what's going on in the district, and it, it is shocking to me how the noticeably Jewish neighborhoods do not vote. They told me the statistics, and it is amazing how our community does not vote. I was always, always under the impression that uh, the heavily populated Jewish areas are, in fact, motivated to vote, and that the... Uh, rabbis, rebbes, teachers, and leaders, in fact, um, make sure that they vote, but I am under the wrong impression. It is amazing just how few people are actually getting out to the polls. And I can only imagine with this election being the primary election being August 23rd with so many people away, I can only imagine how little of a Jewish vote is going to be represented that day. So something to keep in mind when we think about the, uh, Issues of power and influence of different communities, voting is probably the most important key to all of that, and it seems to be, it seems that it's being neglected in our community, even in the very noticeably Jewish communities, and that was a surprise to me, and something that needs to be rectified. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world of web, and on the Alchemsingale Network, and of course on the beloved NSNF. We're in a spoken word format at JM in the AM this week because it's the nine days. Rabbi right, Barrel Wine's lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or rabbiwine.com, rabbiwein.com. Again, we're in a spoken word format here at JM in the AM, and um, that will continue until uh, after the Tishabov observance this coming Sunday. Later on this morning, we will uh, speak with a representative of the OU. They have a lot of um, programming available this coming Sunday in regard to... Uh, the tish of live streams, etc. We'll explore all of that coming up here at J.M. and the A.M. Galitzal Israel Army Radio 2 p.m. newscast for a wednesday's next. We say Boker Tov from J.M. and the A.M. Galitzal Mirushalayim
3: Hasha'at Shalom Rav Ba'ulpan Rani Avnai Ema Shekorei Achshav. Parasha Tirsu Asarot beChelgal Boa. B'Sha Azom Itkneset Yishivam Meshutefet Shel V'Adat Bitachon Apnim Ve'V'Adat Achutz Ve'Bitachon Shel Akneset Le'Dyon Mi'Uchat Be'Parasha. Bi'istatfut B'Chirim mitzal B'Shirut B'Teis Soar. מדיון פרץ ויכוח ונוגע להמשיך שירות חיילות בסדיר כסוערות בבתי הכלא חברת הכנסת מיכאל רוזינ ממהרת צמר בבהודה יקשלנו בשמירה על חיילים.
0: אני מדבאישת שזה קרה במשמרת שלנו. דרASHנו מהasar לביתחון פנימי, תקימו בהודח חקירה, בחלו על הממשלה שלנו, נו לנו, זה לא פוליטי. סרבו בתוקף. אני נגדי, הצבת, חיילים וחיילות מחוץ לצבא, במדינת ישראל שרות חובה ושרות מANDATORY. לא אני, לא אבAT שלי, ולא בנים שלי, יקHלים ליצור EF על שרת.
3: בני גנץ מביר אם לא ימצא פתרון הולם לשירות חיילות בבתי הכלא לא יכתום על הצו המאפשר זאת
4: יש לקיים שיח מיידי بين המשרדים
2: בנוגע להמשך שירות חובה בשירות בתי עשור. אנחנו ננהל את התהליך הזה ביסודיות ובמהירות ואם נידרש נביא גם את הנושא לחקיקה במעלה הדרך. ככל שלא ימצא פתרון הולם שמניח הדעתי לא החדש את הצו המאפשר את השירות הזה ארבעה חודשים.
3: אבשל לגנד שהעביר עיר כתבנו הצבאי דרון קדוש מגיעים על רקע מכתבו של השר לביטחון הפנים עומר ברלב, בו כי הפסקת שילוב החיילות בתפקידי סוערות דורש שינוי חקיקה בכנסת. המתיחות בגבול עזה גם היום נמשכות תגבלות החמורות על תנועה בישובי האוטף עם סירים מרכזיים והפסקת תנועת הרכבות בין אשקלון לנתיבות למורת רוחם של תושבי האזור. נדב פרץ, תושב קיבוץ נחל עוז, אומר לאמיר איבגה ביואן הצהריים אנחנו נמצאים במצב בלתי סביר אנחנו עם תנועה שהיא מאוד מאוד מצומצמת מאפשרים תנועה מדודה בתאומים, עם בעלת ספחילים ומחת הביטחון בפועל האזור פה משותק ומעל הכל יש את הדריכות הזו של מה יהיה אין פה ביקורת על החלטות של מחת הביטחון אבל יש פה איזושהי ביקורת בשאלות לדרג מדינית. זאת אומרת, מה המסר שהעצירת השדרה הזו מעביר? בבית משפט השלום בראשון לציון מתקיים כעת דיון בעקבות בקשה דחופה של ביתר ירושלים להסיר את המגבלות שהטילה המשטרה על מחירת המועדון. ואת המשפט מדווח כתב חדשות הספורט יונתן
1: גריל. במשטרה דורשים מביתר ירושלים וברק אברמוב להעביר ערבות בסך 11 מיליון שקלים על רכישת המועדון, צעד שבביתר טוענים כי אף הורחש פוטנציאלי לא יהיה מוכן לקבל, ויוביל בפועל לירידת הקבוצה לליגה א' ולקריסתה המוחלטת. אבראמוב משה חוגג, שחקנים ואועדים של הקבוצה מהבירה הגיעו כדי לתמוך, כשבעוד שבוע יהיה התאריך האחרון, בו ביתר תוכ J M the A M in the discussion about America and uh, its Jews, Rabbi right? Baral wine has a specific lecture on Orthodoxy, which is what we're going to be featuring next. Again, his lectures and information about the lectures at one 499 nine W E I N or Rabbi Wein, Later this hour, we'll explore with her by Brandsdorfer for the uh, Torah initiatives at the OU and what's happening this coming weekend with Tisha A lot of offerings. We'll get into that coming up. And um, in the 8 o'clock hour, I hope to play something that uh, we've been playing since it was delivered back uh, this week in 1994. My father's Shloshim has spit of the Rebbe, which is a uh, an interesting perspective to say the least into one of the great leaders of the Jewish people. So we'll do that coming up in hour number three this morning here at JM in the AM. Uh, by the way, Yossi Zweig is planning a uh, Wednesday live lunch today. Acapella style Wednesday live lunch, a Z-Report live lunch that we will pick up as one of the platforms that picks up that live lunch that's happening today starting at 11 a.m. Eastern time right here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of orthodoxy in the series entitled The United States and Its Jews, here at JM in the AM.
2: I think the uh, pivotal decades uh, regarding American Jewry occurred in the 1940s and 1950s. America in the 1930s was very isolationist. Uh, Roosevelt ran for a third term on the promise that he would keep America out of war. And in fact, uh, there's great doubt uh, that America would have entered the war under any circumstances if it were not for the effect that the Japanese attacked them at Pearl Harbor, and that Hitler, for some strange reason, uh, when America only declared war on Japan, uh, Hitler declared war on the United States unilaterally three days later. Now, part of the uh, isolationist uh, feeling in the country was that they didn't want to get involved in what they called the Jewish War. Hitler's anti-Semitism, the uh, program that he announced that he would destroy European Jewry, as loathsome as it was, for the United States to enter. Uh, the majority of the American people, did not want to fight a war on behalf of saving European Jews. And they did not want to fight a war to save England or France. Uh, because they were very uh, disappointed at what happened after the First World War, when they felt that they had saved the Allies, and that Everything just went back The business as usual. The the empires restored themselves, etc. So America was very much out of it. And Jewish America then was hardly influential in any way whatsoever. It was influential, as I mentioned in the last lecture, which I'm certain you remember every word of, that uh, was influential in entertainment, in the radio, in the movies, and uh, somewhat in the financial world, but not in the political world at all. There was only uh, uh, one Jewish representative in the House of Representatives, Sal Bloom from New York, who was pretty much Jewish in name only? Uh, Roosevelt, however, in his cabinet had uh, his uh, friend from uh, upstate from Hyde Park, New York, Henry Morgenthau, Jr., as his Secretary of the Treasury. Morgenthau was a uh, A reformed Jew, he was a very assimilated Jew. Uh, He did not seem to be overly interested in Jewish matters either. And therefore, uh, the Jewish community, uh, when the war broke out, So the war began in September 1939. By uh, the beginning of 1941, America is still not in the war. In September 1941, two years after the war started, America is still not in the war. But reports began to drift back as to what was happening in Poland, in the Baltic States, that the Germans were uh, destroying the Jewish community, and on the other hand, that the communists were destroying the Jewish community. And the Jews were caught in the vice between Hitler and Stalin, the two great murderers of the 20th century. And the Jews were, as I mentioned, uh, in the United States, uh, to a great extent, powerless. However, there were uh, the New York Times was Jewish, other media's outlets were Jewish, but uh, they did not dwell upon the Jewish problem because of the fact that that was very dangerous for the Jews in the United States itself. There was a great deal of anti Semitism in the United States and Jews had a low profile. Then the war breaks out, the Japan attacks in 1941, and it becomes a patriotic war. Tens of thousands of Jews uh, enlist or are drafted into the United States Army. And uh, the uh, strategy was agreed upon that the first border of business would be the defeat of Germany before the defeat of Japan. By the end of 1942, when uh, Hitler had already invaded Russia and conquered most of European Russia, he controlled uh, millions and millions of Jews. And in 1941, they had set up already the apparatus for the final solution, and they were going to exterminate all of European Jewry. The United States State Department was aware of that. Jewish leaders in the United States also became aware of that. And they were faced with a terrible dilemma. Now, who were the Jewish leaders in the United States then? Well, Stephen Wise was an advisor to Roosevelt. He was a Reform rabbi. Uh, other uh, Jews uh, were. Uh, the establishment was Reformed. The establishment was assimilationist. Those who represented the Jewish people. And the Orthodox, even though they may have had to a certain extent, numbers on their side then had almost no influence. It was Yiddish-speaking rabbis. Uh, They were looked at as dinosaurs. So in 1943, for instance, the uh, Union of Orthodox Rabbis of the United States and Canada under the direction of Rabbi Eliezer Silver, who was the role in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, they were already privy to what was going on in Europe. They knew it. And they tried to influence the United States government to do something about it. Now, what the United States government could or could not have been done is a matter of debate until today. But the policy was that we're not going to bother with the Holocaust because that diverts attention and resources away from defeating Germany. The best way to deal with the... Jewish uh, problem in Europe is to defeat Germany, and the sooner the better, and we can't spare anything, therefore, on behalf of the refugees or on behalf of the Jews in Europe. That was the official line, was the line of the State Department, Cordell Hull, who was the Secretary of State, was an anti-Semite. Breckinridge, who was in charge of the visa program, was an anti-Semite. America turned away uh, Jewish refugees that uh, attempted to come to America. They sent away the uh, St. Louis, uh, that boat, had almost a thousand refugees, all of whom eventually perished. Uh, America was not forthcoming. (laughs) In the month of Elul in 1943, the Agudu Sarabonim organized a demonstration of 300 rabbis, over 300 rabbis, who went to Washington and on the steps of uh, the Capitol protested what was happening to the Jewish community in Eastern Europe, and who demanded that the United States do something. Uh, Roosevelt refused to meet with them. The one who did meet with them was Henry Morgenthau. And fascinatingly enough, uh, they made a great impression upon Morgenthau a reformed Jew. All of these white-bearded Yiddish-speaking rabbis, and Morgenthau became interested in the Jewish cause. Uh, there was a rov in, uh, in New York, Rabbi Kalmanowitz, Kalmanovich, uh, who uh, represented the mirror Yeshiva that was stuck in Shanghai that had escaped through Japan and Rabbi Kalmanovitz somehow got into Morgenthau's office and Rabbi Kalmanovitz, who was a great fundraiser, had the knack to faint upon will, which had an effect upon donors who were recalcitrant. And he uh, got a hold of Morgenthau, and he fainted for him. And Morgenthau was shaken. And Morgenthau worked through uh, Roosevelt, and a refugee camp was established in upstate New York, where eventually uh, 30,000 Jews were saved. Uh, because the Germans were corrupt, uh, as Eichmann proved later, and uh, there were uh, organizations, especially in Switzerland, Jewish organizations, that simply bribed and corrupted, and therefore uh, what amounts to a minuscule amount, but some Jews were able to be ransomed and escaped. In the overall picture, uh, the Americans did not bomb uh, the trains to Auschwitz, did not bomb the Auschwitz itself, even though they had aerial photo- photographs of it. Uh, they were well aware, but again, the claim was that you could not be diverted from the main thrust of the war, which was to defeat uh, Germany. And then to go on and defeat Japan. Part of the suspicion that still existed in America was that the Jews were basically communists, and uh, this was encouraged in the Second World War by the fact that Russia was an ally of the United States, and because of that, Uh, pro-Russian, pro-Communist propaganda uh, filtered through everywhere in the United States. I remember when I was in public school then, uh, we had uh, one Jewish teacher who uh, taught us uh, Russian Communist songs (laughs) as part of our patriotic effort to defeat Germany. And the Jewish community was under great suspicion. Later, the suspicion became intense because when it was revealed that the uh, spies, the atomic spies, were Jewish on behalf of the Soviet Union, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. The Jewish community did nothing to defend them because of that fear. I don't know whether it could have been or should have been defended. And then uh, in the atomic program, Oppenheimer, Greenglass, etc., the Jewish scientists all lost their security clearances and were accused of being agents for the Soviet Union when after the war, three things happened uh, that affected the Jewish community greatly. First of all the horror of the Holocaust was revealed. Eisenhower called in all the army photographers to photograph and take movies of Bergen-Belsen. The horror was visible. It was undeniable. The second thing that happened was the struggle f- to create the state of Israel. Now, American Jewry rallied behind it. Uh, it it's almost uh, unbelievable the amount of unity that was in the American Jewish community on behalf of the State of Israel. The Jewish Mafia made a parlor meeting for Golda Meir. He went to a parlor meeting for the Mafia, you know. He didn't say, uh, you know, I'll I'll send you a check later. (laughs) And she walked out with a whole bunch of cash that she was able to buy arms. Not only buy arms, the Mafia controlled the Longshoremen's Union in New York, and therefore they smuggled all the arms on ships that got to Palestine. Basically that's how the Haganah and the Irgun had their weapons. So American Jewry was u- light, united on that. There were no calls then uh, against the, uh, the state not amongst the religious and not amongst the secular, not amongst anyone. And at that time, the Soviet Union also supported it. One of the anomalies of the situation is that the Soviet Union also supported it. So the Jewish communists were in it too. So you had a united Jewish community And uh, Roosevelt uh, conveniently died because had he lived, it probably never would have happened. And Truman succeeded him. And Truman had certain advisors who were not Jewish, but who were very pro-Israel, Clark Clifford and others, who felt that it was not only in the best interests of the Jewish people, but in the best interests of the United States to support it. And the State of Israel came into being, and uh, mainly because it was backed originally by the United States, even though the United States did not offer any material aid or officially send any arms. So that was the second thing that affected the Jews. The third thing that affected the Jews was a complete change in the demographics and the economic status of the Jewish people in the United States. During the war, a lot of people made a lot of money. Some legally, some in the gray area, some illegally, But a lot of people made money, because there was rationing, so then how could you get around rationing, and there were a lot of things. And when the war ended, a lot of people had money, but it had nothing to do with the money, because there had been no consumer goods uh, that uh, had been produced during the war. It was all uh, military goods. So now that the consumerism returned to the United States, uh, the Jewish community exploded. First thing they did is move out of the old Jewish neighborhoods. There was a migration of African-Americans from the south that had come north to get jobs, to work in the industrial plants, and the entire Jewish neighborhoods, within a uh, a year or two, uh, there had almost no Jews living there anymore. I remember Chicago, when the war ended, there were 42 Orthodox synagogues in the Lawndale area, and there were about uh, 80,000 Jews that lived there. Within five years, There only were about 10,000 Jews left, and there only were six synagogues left. And this was a great demographic change, because now the push to suburbia began. You didn't want to live in an apartment anymore. You wanted to have your own home. You wanted to have a garden, backyard. And uh, this developed. Now, in order for uh, Torah Jews, observant Jews, uh, to have an infrastructure, they have to live, uh, relatively speaking, close to the Jewish institutions. You have to live close to the synagogue to go on Sabbath. You need uh, butcher shops, you need kosher, you need... uh The suburbs were basically against all of that because they were so spread out. It was almost impossible that uh, large numbers of Jews could walk to the synagogue. And therefore, because of this uh, social problem, uh, the uh, major break between the conservative movement in the United States and the orthodox took place. Until uh, probably 1948, 49, the conservative movement was basically orthodox light. Uh, They had deviations in the fact that men and women were not separated in the synagogue But the synagogue service was Orthodox, and most of the rabbis were observant Orthodox. The Jewish Theological Seminary, which trained the conservative rabbis, had an Orthodox faculty, and it itself was strictly Orthodox. The seminary always had separate seating, and the line was very blurred. But the break occurred in 1948 because of the fact that the conservatives were the vanguard that built synagogues in suburbia. So they were faced with the problem immediately of how are we going to have people come on the Sabbath. They're not going to walk three, four miles. And therefore, the rabbinic commission of the seminary uh, commissioned a uh, halachic review. And they wrote a very scholarly rabbinic responsa using halachic terms, claiming that on the basis of The halacha, they were able to do so. And they said it's all right to drive a car to the synagogue on Sabbath if you're going for the services.
1: J.M. in the AM with a uh, conversation, or I should say a lecture by Barrel Wine in the Nine Days Spoken Word format. That's uh, a very interesting lecture from the series entitled The United States and Its Jews. He's on the topic of orthodoxy. We'll get to more of that lecture coming up here at JM in the AM. Welcome to a, a Wednesday on this third day of August, day number six in the month of Menachem our nine days format will continue through Sunday through Tushabov, Monday back to our regular format. Feel free to comment on the app, go to the NSN, Nachum Single Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away as we like to say. Uh, coming up, we'll find out what the OU has planned for Sunday for the observance of Tisha B'av. We will also uh, uh, play for you later on in the third hour this morning, My Father's Eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was delivered on the Rebbe Lotion back in 1994, this week. Um, Yossi Zweig will conduct a Thursday, or I should say a Wednesday live lunch. It'll be available on many platforms, including ours. A Z report live lunch with A selections coming up between eleven AM and one PM right here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Rabbi David Goldwasser. Sure we... Oh, sorry about that. Let's <laughs> let's take care of that before we move on. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechanishmas Arav Zebin Abis of Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning Chizuk.
4: Good morning. It says in Echo, Yeshev Badad. One should sit in solitude and wait for Hashem has placed the burden upon him. The great Yismach Moshe talks about an only son who became ill. The only cure was a very bitter-tasting medicine. The boy would constantly plead with his parents not to make him take that medicine, but the father had to ignore the cries and force the child to take it. A friend of the boy saw this and said to him, Your father must really hate you. He forces you to swallow it. The sick boy tried to explain that it was exactly the opposite. It showed his father's great love for him. It was certainly painful for the father to watch his only child take that medicine, but he forced himself to ignore the feelings because of his great love for the child. The friend didn't understand the point. So the child decided it was better to keep quiet. Like it says in Mishle, don't answer the fool according to his foolishness. Because you're going to be considered just like him. After the boy was cured, the father celebrated with a huge suda-soda. He gave the child many presents. The boy called his friend to come and show him that the father was a loving father all along. The Bnei Yisrael are a Ben Yochid, like an only son to Hashem. As it says, We have done a virus. We have committed sins. And because of that, we have a spiritual type of illness. We have to take the medicine of suffering in the Golos, and doing tshuva. We scream from pain, but we realize that the avarachamim sometimes has to let things happen. The other nations ridicule, and they taunt us. Can we explain it to them? Will they understand? So we also sit in silence. Yeshev bodod v'idom. However, we wait for the time when we will be healed, then it will be clear to the world the great love that Hashem has for his people, b'ni b'chari Yisrael. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day.
1: J.M. in the AM, that's Rabbi Goldwasser, and we thank him, of course. Um, more coming up, it's J.M. in the AM on a Wednesday morning, and Rabbi Beryl Wine has a lecture series entitled The United States and Its Jews. We'll continue with his analysis of orthodoxy. And uh, then we will speak to our uh, guests from the OU about Tisha above and plenty more coming up here at JM in the AN. And that was a major break
2: because uh, people... Uh, <laughs> people were not uh, taken in by this. If you could drive the car to the synagogue, you could drive it to the golf course too. And therefore, uh, the Sabbath was broken. It was broken badly. So you had this major split in the American Jewish community along observant lines, really along the lines of the Sabbath. And when I grew up as a child, uh, I had a lot of friends that weren't Sabbath observers, but they were Jewish. But the Sabbath was the Sabbath. There was only one definition of it. Later on, however... The definition became whether you were a Sabbath observer or not. I think the air conditioning is off, right? So either open the windows or ask them to turn on the air (laughs) conditioning. Should open the windows. (laughs) Now, in addition to this, Starting in 1946 and continuing uh, till about 1960 there was a wave of Eastern European Jews that came to the United States, the survivors. With them came the surviving Hasidic leaders the surviving Russian Yeshiva, those who escaped, those who were from Shanghai, they came to America. Unlike their predecessors, they were not willing to admit that America was different. They were not willing to say, we're going to compromise because it's America. And they took a very hard line On matters of observance, on matters of kosherists, and on policy matters. So for instance, there was an organization in the United States called the Synagogue Council of America. The Synagogue Council of America, uh, which really never accomplished anything, which is not unlike other organizations, Uh, was composed of reform, conservative, and orthodox synagogues and of reform, conservative, and orthodox rabbinic organizations. And it had existed since the 1920s. It had lobbied on behalf of Jewish causes, but it really wasn't a very effective or strong organization. It, however, became the focal point of a dispute in the Orthodox community, a dispute which still has ramifications until today, and it's mirrored here in Israeli society as well. The uh, European rabbis, who now had positions in the American Yeshivot and who were Hasidic leaders and were very, very influential and strong and great people. They demanded that the Orthodox withdraw from the Synagogue Council of America. That In effect they gave up on the conservative and reform movement in America The underlying reason was that they said these people are never going to change, we're never going to be able to convince them, they're going to drift off, that's it. We have to build ourselves, we have to go our own way, we have to forget about them. Now there were sections in the Orthodox community that disagreed with that, that felt that it was an unnecessary fracture. But it nevertheless occurred and it had great influence because it developed within orthodoxy itself two streams in America. One stream would control, represent the yeshiva world and the Hasidic world and the other one eventually claimed to be the representatives of modern orthodoxy. no one expected that somehow the hardliners, those that represented the yeshiva world, etc., would be successful. And they started out very small. I remember that in 1953 uh, my father and I took a trip to
1: the East Coast. And we'll find out more about that with uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine coming up here at JM in the AM as we uh, continue to explore his uh, lecture on orthodoxy from the series entitled The United States and its Jews, Information about Rabbi Wine's Lectures, which are the centerpiece of our spoken word programming during the nine days at JM in the AM. 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and rabbiwine.com rabbiwein.com JM in the AM on this um uh, on this Wednesday morning broadcast, I want to remind everybody that the uh, the Isaiah Wall Mincha service, which had become a uh, a real tradition, one that we participated in many many times, is now virtual. It's happening on Tisha B'av day, but it's going to be virtual. Um, the uh, presentations will include uh, many different um, speeches and conversations about Jews in peril throughout the world. Uh, whether we're talking about Ukraine the threat of terror in Israel, uh, the threat of Iran, uh, a nuclear Iran, etc., etc. If you'd like that information with the Zoom ID, etc., for this coming Sunday, uh, just send us an email, Nahum at Again, nachum N-A-C-H-U-M, at n a c h u m s e g a l N-A-C-H-U-M, S-E-G-A-L.com. And we will forward that information to you. It's a pretty extensive Zoom ID, so it would be easier if you had it in front of you than me trying to recite it over the air. So again, uh, just to send us an email and we will deal with that uh, accordingly. J.M. M&M and the Am on this 3rd of August, day number six in the month of Menachem Av, uh, as we are in the midst of the nine days, back to our regular format on Monday. Uh, the OU, the Orthodox Union, has some uh, important, serious, and uh, really meaningful plans for this coming Tisha b'a. The OU has taken a lead uh, when it comes to TishaBov programming over the last few years, especially as the world has gotten smaller with the capabilities of actually participating in live streams and and uh, recorded presentations um, uh, on the Internet. And the OU has used all of that to its advantage and to our advantage in order to become more inspired and spend TishaBov in a very effective and uh, uplifting manner. Rabbi Moshe Brandsdorfer is with us live via telephone. He directs the Orthodox Union's Torah Initiatives Department and can shed some more light on what's happening this coming Tisha B'av, courtesy of the OU. Rabbi Brandsdorfer, a pleasure to welcome you to JM in the AM.
5: Thank you, uh, Malcolm, for having me on. I really appreciate it and for giving me the opportunity to uh, to discuss the Tisha B'Av uh, Kino's program presented by the OU our initiatives. I'll briefly just review the few speakers um, that will be presenting on Tish above. Just one one note that I like to point out to people when they ask whether this is another Tish above program. Um, this program is uniquely different than I believe any other program because this is a live kinos program. Right. Um, this gives an opportunity to people that are at home whether they're elderly or they're young mothers or for whatever reason, they can't make it to uh, their local shul, their local synagogue. It gives them the opportunity to participate and actually get a feeling for Tisha B'av and for the Harbin Beis Amigdosh and yearn a little bit for the uh, for the Geula. that um, should come speedily in our time. So we have a, an incredible lineup. Rabbi Howard, who's executive vice president of the OU of the Orthodox Union. He'll be live streaming from... Baltimore, Maryland um, for the morning kinos. We have the executive vice president emeritus of the OU, Rabbi Dr. Seharch Weinreb, who will be on demand all day. The pre-record Rabbi Weinreb is a wealth of information. Um, he has a fantastic kinos program, and he goes through also some of the people, some of the notable Jewish leaders that have passed away this past year. He, go, he does a little bit of a, um, a memorial of them. Replying, uh, Kanievsky Zatzal and he and and some of the other uh, notable people leaders of Eretz Israel that passed away. Uh, we're, we have Rabbi Stephen Weil, the CEO of Friends of IDF, coming live from Teaneck, New Jersey, and for our Achenu bnei Yisrael that are in Eretz Israel, we have Rabbi, Z- Rabbi Azaria Berzan coming to us from Eretz Israel from the OU Israel um, Center, and that's obviously going to start 8:30 a.m. Israel time. So. There's something here for everyone um, on Tish morning.
1: It's interesting above because uh, you talk yeah. about you talk about round the clock programming. In theory, if someone has trouble sleeping Saturday night, they could tune in to Rabbi Berzon and and hear his entire presentation as well, even if they're on this side of the world. Hundred
5: percent. If you get a good nap <laughs> on Shabbos and you're up and you're up like me till three o'clock on Monday Shabbos, a hundred percent, you could start watching. No, no doubt, no doubt about it. So, I Rabbi Berzon will be live from here, the
1: oh, yeah. Rabbi Berzon will be live from the Seymour Abrams Orthodox Union Jerusalem World Center that we know on Rehov Karen Ha'isod. Sod. Uh, that'll begin as uh, as Rabbi Brandstoffer said, a eight thirty Israel time with Shacharis. Uh, And then, and then again, just to make this clear, I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to portray uh, any type of rivalry, but to make it clear, Rabbi Hauer and Rabbi Weil are going to be uh, delivering live presentations parallel, one in Baltimore and one in Teaneck?
5: Correct. Correct. You have an option to choose Rabbi Weil or Rabbi Hauer. You know, if you, if you want to switch in the middle, that's also okay. (laughs) That's Um, a channel Channel. Some channel surfing, right. um, as they as they call it. Yes, the opportunity is there for both of them. Rabbi Rabbi Hauer and Rabbi Weinreb will have uh, ASL, which is American Sign Language, for uh, those that are hearing impaired and those that are, that need it. Um, the OU uh, is very sensitive towards the you know the whole community and special and, and the special needs community, so that they make that available as well.
1: All right, Moshe Brandsdorfer is with us. Um, OU.org slash TishaBov, everybody. OU.org slash TishaBov, and they spell TishaBov, T-I-S-H-A-B-A-V. Again, it's OU.org slash TishaBov for information about what's happening on Sunday. Before we get to the other things that are happening on Sunday, Rabbi Brandsdorfer, just a word. I mean, you alluded to this already, but but I think it bears um, uh, uh, going uh, in-depth a drop more. Um, It is amazing that now we have this opportunity to be in shul even when we can't go to shul, meaning uh, that um, there are many people who would spend their Tisha above morning in alternate ways, obviously it being Sunday on this side of the world, uh, people usually don't have to go to work on sunday so they'll have more of an opportunity to actually be in shul which is wonderful but when tisha above is during the week it becomes much more of an issue um the, the fact that we're able to look in and participate and be inspired and even if if one is occupied with you know family matters taking care of kids etc having this on in the background concurrent with tisha above morning it is such an amazing way to enhance one's and one's family's Tisha B'av experience. And this should not be lost on every on anybody that if you have not yet had the opportunity, you've never taken advantage of this service by the OU. Now is a really good time to start. What are your thoughts about infusing a real Tisha B'Av Kinnis service uh, into someone's household on Tisha B'av morning? 100%
5: nothing. That's, that's, that's completely accurate. Um, you know, People have young kids that that might that don't necessarily go to school on on Tisha B'av morning. The day camps are closed. Um, the kids are going to be especially because it's like you mentioned, it's Sunday this right, year. Right. Um, the kids the kids are going to be home. Uh, this is this is an opportunity for for to bring Tisha B'av into the home to to have our kids feel a little bit of the a little bit of the gullus that we don't often feel in 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 um in now in our current time sometimes we feel it with anti-Semitism and some of the other current events but there's an opportunity for them to get physic and to get um, spiritual awakening towards uh Tisha B'av and towards towards yearning for the Google and I-, I think it's a wonderful opportunity and the the use of technology the ease of technology and and The commonplace use of technology has just made it really uh, accessible, and the OU is at the forefront of that and bringing this uh, program in.
1: It is pretty amazing the stage we've gotten to, and I'm assuming that uh, all these presentations that you mentioned, in addition to the ones that we're going to be speaking about in a moment, all these presentations I assume are available all day long, right? If somebody wants to uh, see or hear uh, any of these uh, at 3, 4, 5, 6 o'clock on Tish Above Day just to keep the spirit of the day going, it's all available to them.
5: Yes, correct. the The morning kinos will be available all day. Um, I will mention that the afternoon. There's some. If someone goes to the bottom of the homepage, right. official homepage, the OU Women's Initiative will be having um, stories from from Holocaust survivors, inspirational stories. Um, there will be other links available for uh, impactful programming as well.
1: Uh, plus, in addition to that, the NCSY Kumsits of the World, which is. Uh uh, which is coming directly from the uh, the Kotel, uh, directly from the Western Wall. And now that is uh, something that's happening toward the evening in Israel. So I guess for us in this time zone, it would be toward the early afternoon. But that's also accessible starting at 12 noon Eastern time uh, on the OU website. So the OU Women's Initiative, NCSY comes of the World, and of course the Kinnis services uh, in multiple locations uh, that we have the ability to access through the OU website is all going to be presented on TishaBov. All the information is at ou. Dot org slash tishabov, ou.org slash tishabov you could register you could actually you could actually get a reminder about it uh, right now you can actually register and get a reminder about all these events uh, just by going to that page and checking it out and when you go to that page on tishabov day uh, there's literally one click to get to the live presentations and one click to get to the recorded presentations it could not be any easier rabbi Brandt-Zoll, for anything else you'd like to add about what's happening this sunday with the OU
5: uh, I just want to thank the Parkoff family for for sponsoring this. They sponsor it. Uh, they've sponsored us the last few years. It's you know people people have a misnomer that virtual is free. It doesn't you know set <laughs> up Obviously not knows. Nachum knows from running a a media company's expensive that goes into videography and all this. It's, uh, it's and marketing. It's not not cheap. But uh, we're very excited to, to provide this service for the service to the clow, and we thank the Parkhoff family for their for their generosity.
1: As uh, Rabbi Brandsdorfer mentioned, the program is dedicated by Richard and Deborah Parkhoff in memory of Avraham Ben Yitzchak Cohen and in memory of Rachel Bluma. Bas Yehoshua. All right, Moshe Bransdorfer heads the uh, Torah initiatives at the OU. Big day coming up Sunday. That's right. We're hoping we're not going to have to observe Tisha B'Av this year, but the likelihood is we are, and the OU is prepared with some incredible presentations, including Rabbi Hauer, Rabbi Wander, Rabbi Weil, and by Burzon, all participating in the presentation of Kinnis, uh, both in the morning and all day on Tisha B'Av. All right, Bransdorfer, I wish you an easy fast, and thanks so much to you and everybody at the OU for providing all these services for our community worldwide.
5: Thank you as well, and I hope to uh, see, you, see you in Yushalayim very shortly.
1: Bez Thank you so much for that. More coming up. It's JM in the AM on a Wednesday morning. Again, the website is ou.org slash tishabov, ou.org slash tishabov. We are in the midst of our spoken word programming, which is how we uh, present the... Um, uh, the nine days format here at JMNAM. If you're into the a cappella selections, you can hear that all day long in the Nahum Siegel Network. Plus, Yossi Zweig will be doing an a cappella live lunch that we, of course, uh, will be um, airing later today. 11 a.m. Eastern Time until 1 p.m. So you can check that out and uh, see what he has to offer during these nine days. In terms of the acapella selections. Meanwhile, we continue with our Beryl Wine. His uh, topic on the United States and its Jews is the Orthodox Jewish community. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM.
2: 20s. Uh, it, had, uh, it lobbied on behalf of Jewish causes, but it really wasn't a uh, very effective or strong organization. It, however, became the focal point of a dispute in the Orthodox community, a dispute which still has ramifications until today, and it's mirrored here in Israeli society as well. The uh, European rabbis, who now had positions in the American yeshivot, and who were Hasidic leaders, and were very, very influential, and strong and great people. They demanded that the Orthodox withdraw from the Synagogue Council of America. In effect they gave up on the conservative and reform movement in America. The underlying reason was that they said these people are never gonna change, we're never gonna be able to convince them, they're gonna drift off, that's it. We have to build ourselves, we have to go our own way, we have to forget about them. Now, there were sections in the Orthodox community that disagreed with that, that felt that it was an unnecessary fracture. But it nevertheless occurred, and it had great influence, because it developed within orthodoxy itself, two streams in America. One stream would control, represent the yeshiva world and the Hasidic world, and the other one eventually claimed to be the representatives of modern orthodoxy. But no one expected that somehow the hardliners, those that represented the yeshiva world, etc., would be successful. And they started out very small. I remember that in 1953, uh, my father and I took a trip to the East Coast. And my father who knew Rabbi Aaron Cutler from Europe uh, went to see him and then he uh, had started his institution in Lakewood there was a lady there that uh, gave him an old uh, rooming house to house the yeshiva and uh, It had a student body then of 27. Of whom a a third or perhaps a half were European born, not even Americans. And my father asked uh, Rabbi Cutler how many uh, students does he expect that his yeshiva will grow into? And the answer was... uh, Fifty, maybe a hundred. the last count, I think there were uh, ninety-three hundred and forty-one. <laughs> uh, so that's a remarkable change in American jewelry, and. Uh, was matched by uh, the development of Hasidic neighborhoods in, in, especially in New York, Borough Park, which originally was uh, pretty much a modern Orthodox neighborhood. It became a bastion of the Hasidic, and uh, Williamsburg, the Sotmer built it, and uh, there was a new, uh, a new uh, energy in the Orthodox community, even though most of American Jewry, the overwhelming amount, were conservative and reform. And the conservative were positive that they were the wave of the future. There was an article in Look magazine in uh, 1950 about about American Jewry, and it predicted that the wave of the future would be that American Jewry would be conservative, the Orthodox would disappear, and it would be conservative and reform, and that would be it. And that was the expert opinion. All the Jewish federations, all the Jewish uh, Official organizations were based on that premise. And therefore their executive heads and their boards of directors were all conservative in reform. I remember uh, when... Uh, in uh, 1958 to 59, I appeared before the Federation in Chicago to appeal for funds for the Jewish, Orthodox Jewish Day School there Uh, to say that I got a hostile reception would be an understatement. The Federation today gives uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in Chicago to uh, Orthodox educational institutions because that became the ball game there is nothing else to do and uh, great changes were occurring uh, Dr. Belkin was the Head of the Yeshiva University, a man of great vision, a great, great Talmudic scholar. So he established the Albert Einstein Medical School, which uh, allowed Orthodox students to obtain a medical degree without violating the Sabbath. And because Einstein was successful, it was copied by other medical schools that were not Jewish, but who now instituted a Sabbath observant program in order to attract these students. And the Jewish community began to come into its own. There was a… anti-semitism was no longer What shall I say? Acceptable. It existed, but it was not something you advertised anymore. There was a famous movie called Gentleman's Agreement, which highlighted anti-Semitism. And people talked about it. And it became uh, less and less acceptable. Uh, the horrors of the Holocaust naturally had a great influence. And Jewish political influence grew as well. So, uh, in 1960, for instance, John F. Kennedy was elected because of uh, Jacob Arvey, who was a member of my father's shul in Chicago. And he was the Democratic National Committeeman for Illinois, and uh, when uh, the vote in Illinois, Kennedy needed uh, a few more thousand votes, Harvey somehow supplied him with 8,000 votes, and uh, Nixon was defeated. So there was now Jewish influence. Not only that, uh, the labor unions became strong the Jews were very strong in the labor union. Even in Roosevelt's time, uh, so Roosevelt used to say, you have to clear it with a Jewish labor leader as to whether or not it'll go. So Jews became much more influential than their numbers would warrant. And the fact that Jews also began to climb the financial scale, and therefore there were people with money, and some Jews had a lot of money. The money buys you influence in politics. Now, all of this uh, was reinforced by the Six-Day War. And Jews in the United States uh, bought Israel bonds. So they bought Israel bonds originally as a donation. They didn't figure that Israel was ever going to redeem the bond. But Israel did so. And uh, Jewish influence, uh, labor unions bought Israel bonds for their pension funds. All sorts of investors. It became not a matter of charity, but a matter of commerce. And the support to Israel grew. Now in 1967, when Nasser and the Arabs said they were going to throw the Jews into the sea, so American Jewry was shocked. I lived through it, I can testify to it. People walked in the streets dumbfounded. You didn't know what to do. I remember I was a road there in Miami Beach then, People came and sat in shul all day, not they didn't daven, they they weren't really, they just sat. Because here it was going to happen again, God forbid. And when the Six-Day War was over, with its astounding result, uh, then American Jewry was absolutely euphoric. And that, again, went across the board. So, for instance, uh, there were still reform temples in 1960s that would not make an an appeal for Israel bonds, because basically reform was against, it was was dual nationalism, etc. However, the demographics of reform changed. Most reform now had Orthodox grandparents, They didn't have reform grandparents, because there are very few reform grandparents that have reform grandchildren. And therefore it all changed and became pro Israel and it became more Jewish. The first time Jews began to wear a kippah on the street in the in the United States or on an airplane. And I I remember in the early 1970s, when I headed the the OU kosherist companies came to us and they wanted to have kosher certification. I never understood, but they felt that somehow, you know, this was a magic thing. There was a man by the name of Ralph Wilson. He owned the Buffalo Bills in the National Football League, and he built uh, uh, the stadium there. He made the uh, parva milk. Rich, Rich, uh, Rich's Whip, whatever. Yeah, that was him. He made a forge. So he had the biggest OU imaginable on the package. And I once asked him, you know, He said, what are you talking about? He said, that's why I'm successful. That's why Rich's Whip is successful. Look at that big OU. And you had big companies like Procter & Gamble and Colgate and General Foods uh, that all subscribe to have kosher now. When I grew up, there was no kosher margarine, and there was no kosher shortening. By word of mouth, people told us that spry you could use because it was vegetable. My mother didn't believe it, and so we had uh, chicken fat shortening. It was cholesterol heaven. (laughs) It couldn't be more delicious. And then uh, Procter & Gamble made Crisco and put an OU on it and made it kosher. And their sales zoomed. Not because Jews bought Crisco. Somehow other people bought Crisco too. But you had this uh, great upsurge in being Jewish. And then you had uh, 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 the products of the day school movement began to appear. And at least in the Orthodox community, Uh, almost all the parents withdrew their children from the public school system, which already was deteriorating then, and sent them to Jewish day schools. And there were Jewish day schools all over the United States, even in smaller communities. And uh, because of that, uh, Jewish children got a Jewish education. And when you get a Jewish education, your chances of remaining Jewish and observant extremely, uh, develop to an extremely high level. And then you had a birth rate. While the uh, non-Orthodox birth rate began to decline, and it's declined for 50, 60 years consecutively, Today, if you factor out the Orthodox from the birth rate in the United States of Jews, uh, there is less than 1.8, and you need at least 2.2 to replenish what you have. So at this rate, they're all, it's going to disappear. The Orthodox have uh, rates that run from 3.5 to 6, so it's not hard to see if demographics hold, and that's always a question, but it's not hard to see what's going to be and how it's going to be. So you have here this basic uh, split in the American Jewish community. I uh, characterize it as the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Orthodoxy became more self-assertive, stronger, and stronger politically as well. It was ironic that uh, the first Jew who was nominated to be uh, vice president of the United States who was not a reformer or a conservative Jew, who was a Sabbath observant Jew, his wife's name was Sadasa. I think his daughter has made Aliyah here. I mean, to just think of that. You know, when Barry Goldwater ran for president against uh, Lyndon Johnson, so he uh, Goldwater's father, their name was Goldwasser. And uh, Goldwater's grandfather had founded this department store in Phoenix that uh, was uh, very famous and successful. But uh, he uh, he had converted already uh, later in life to become a Christian. And Barry Goldwater was a practicing, Episcopalian. But Goldwater remarked that it, if he was elected, he said it would be ironic in the extreme that the first Jew that was elected as president of the United States was a practicing Episcopalian. <laughs> because that was that generation. That generation was the best that we could do Is Disraeli. Disraeli, he was Jewish, but he's an Anglican. If he would remain Jewish, he would never be uh, the leader of the Tory party, he'd never be Prime Minister, he would never be Queen Victoria's favorite Prime Minister. It was impossible. So the best we could do is also Disraeli. But that changed. One of the things that changed it also uh, was the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was one of the uh, seminal figures in the 20th century of Jewish life. And he uh, developed an entire cadre of people that spread out all over the United States, eventually all over the world and who, un, uh, who were uncompromisingly orthodox. And that was a shot, and who demanded, they demanded that uh, the city uh, erect a menorah on Hanukkah, on city grounds. The case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, okay, in my time, uh, People were afraid to put a nobody put a Hanukkah lamp outside, and if you put it in the window, well, you didn't make it that conspicuous either. And here, uh, you've got these gigantic menorahs on city in Indianapolis and South Bend and uh, Kansas City and uh, Pittsburgh on city grounds. And the uh, Hasidic world and this and Chabad as well refused to come from eyes on clothing. they didn't look American they looked Amish <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: we uh when I was the head of the o u we had a uh, poultry plant uh Empire had one of its plants in a place called Mifflintown, Pennsylvania. I think they're still there. That's the middle of the Amish country. So you couldn't tell the shochtim from the Amish, unless you looked closely because the shochtim had a mustache. But otherwise you couldn't tell the difference. And so there was was a whole different attitude, a whole different attitude towards being Jewish. And uh, this attitude uh, reflected itself in many, many ways. But the dividing line in American Jewry became much more pronounced. Because much of the Orthodox world simply gave up on the others and wanted to have nothing to do with them. Would not uh, would not have uh, any uh, anything joint. Uh, no programs, nothing. There, that's it. And this had uh, all sorts of consequences, because uh, no matter how correct it may have been in their eyes, it certainly alienated a vast majority of American Jewry who came to have a distorted view of Orthodoxy and of Orthodox Jews. So we have that here in Israel too but here it's uh, more political than, uh, than real but it is here too right you want to get elected to Knesset you announce I'm going to destroy the Haredim that's a so to speak a political uh, slogan that's going to carry you to victory and so there are great risks in that great risks and one, uh, to a certain extent, flies in the face again of, democ- of the demographic situation uh, when making such statements. So the, it, this division, there was a moment uh, after the Yom Kippur War, when uh, what was known as the Kiruv movement gained traction both here in Israel and in the United States and uh, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Orthodox Jews who were raised conservative mainly conservative some reformed, but mainly conservative uh, became interested in their roots and thousands of them returned to Jewish observance but the Kirov movement was seen as a threat by the conservative and reform. Because, so to to speak, you were stealing their young and the best that they had. And therefore, they began to oppose it. And the Kirov movement still exists in the United States, but it... uh, has very tough sledding. The last point regarding these uh, generations is the college campus. If you're Jewish, you have to go to college. It's like being bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. And if you don't go to college, you're not really Jewish. And on that, you have to get the uh, post-bachelor uh, degree degree. you got to be a master's or a Ph.D. And that became a fixation in the Jewish world. And uh, the colleges in the United States, uh, from the 1940s onward, uh, became very, very leftist. Uh, they became very atheistic. They became rapidly immoral. And they raised a great challenge, therefore, to the Jewish young people who attended. And the college experience, more than anything else, is what has shaped uh, the intermarriage rate in the United States the assimilationist uh, tendencies the anti-Israel tendencies that's all part of this fixation on colleges and universities which became part of the American Jewish life so uh that's the background to where we are today, and next week I hope to uh, discuss with you today and tomorrow, which is very unpredictable, but I know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> so thank you for coming, and have a very good week.
1: Those of you who are wondering what that topic is, and we will, we will play it for you and present it tomorrow morning. Uh, that Rabbi Wein just alluded to, the topic is declining Jewish society, assimilation, and intermarriage. And when Rabbi Wein says that he can predict what's going to happen, as difficult as it is to make those predictions, I tend to agree with him that it is relatively easy, unfortunately, based on Jewish history, to predict what is, uh, in fact, going to be happening tomorrow. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1 800 499 W E I N, 1 800 W E I N, or rabbiwine.com again, rabbiwine.com. And, um, and that's how you can get information about the different uh, lectures, the entire catalog of lectures that um, are available from wine Wine uh, to the worldwide Jewish community, or to the worldwide community, I should say. JM and the AM, good morning, everybody. It's the third day of uh, of August. It's the sixth day of Menachem Av. We're in a nine-days format. Those of you who would like to um, get information about the virtual Isaiah Wall service for this coming Sunday, just email me, nalchum at nalchumsegal.com, N-A-C-H-U-M at N-A-C-H-U-M-S-E-G-A-L.com, and I'll be more than happy to send that information to you. It's a Zoom virtual event for this coming Sunday. We spoke about the OU earlier. Go to OU.org slash Tishabov in order to um register for this coming Sunday's uh Tishabov programs. Again, that's uh OU.org slash Tishabov for all the presentations that the OU is offering. And um And there you have it. Uh, My father, Rabbi Zev Siegel of Blessed Memory, presented a eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, one that we have played uh, many times on these airwaves. This happened back in 1994 during the Shloshim observance of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And um, this year, the third of Av, when it was the anniversary of when it was presented, was on Sunday. So we figured we could play it at some point this week. Doesn't necessarily have to be exactly on the third of Av. And that's the thinking that went into the scheduling. Of uh, the presentation. So those of you who have um, a curiosity about the Lubavitcher Rebbe and those of you who want to hear a brilliant eulogy uh, that really encapsulates everything about one of the greatest Jewish leaders ever, certainly in modern times, uh, pay careful attention to this. Um, It is the um, eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe as delivered on the Shloshim of the Rebbe, by my father, Rabbi Zev Siegel, back in 1994. For you, at JM in the AM.
6: This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says... (laughs) Is <laughs> Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says the qualifications of leadership should be the following and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves man chachomim." wise man, understanding man, Now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu, where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim, Chochmo, Nevonim, Binot, V'yiduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisroel was given to the rabbi. And he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had cloud soil the entire people of Israel, was his concern And a deep concern. Every corner in the world, no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul.
1: J.M. in the AM, I apologize. We are in the midst of uh, presenting my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and it seems that we were interrupted there for a moment. I apologize for that. We will continue with it now at J.M. in the AM.
6: Corner in the world,
1: no matter how forsaken it was,
6: And no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct Jewish life after the great Hurd, after the tragic Holocaust, that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way. And at the same time, he made Jews feel Without any exception, whoever they may have been, that they are a part of this reconstruction. He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Yisroel. I used to sit and I had the great privilege and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness. But at the same time, in my own way, I was privileged to spend a great deal of time It is no secret. Many of you know it. I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting the bell used to ring and I tried to get up because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, what are you, we are talking about the Chlaal. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Klal Yisroel. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga, and Professor Branova was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover. Beside being a devoted chossid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branova told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Rebbe, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia and he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And actually. They accepted the Rabbi's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change? from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the Rebbe had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers. And the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the rabbi that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the rabbi so a little time passed and I was curious and I said to him I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling down that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the Rabbi said the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came to say goodbye to me before I went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. Says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I asked the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the Rabbi gave me a look, like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. And he says to me the following, he he said it in Yiddish, Do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye and all I did was say don't go for me this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight and this is what Branover meant and this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Israel. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists, I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate. Believe it or not, I was young once. The youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight. One may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science or in military affairs, but the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience, the hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase in the life of Barat Yisroel. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Israel. And I don't have to tell you his concern about the Shlemus of our Israel, That was on his agenda. And in the last few years he had something to worry about as we see it now. We talk about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach, and God forbid, for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it, but the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misilas nefesh of the Schlichim, in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia, and you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline, nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi, who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead, he's suffering in rigor. Or a young man, many of you may know Glossman, a wife, a young wife with three infants, doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, want, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here, Leblay Braskin who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I say to him, excuse me for keeping you so late. So he says, what do you mean, excuse me? First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There, in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one, so we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish. I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shohet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there, and they are still there. Yes, indeed, outreach to its maximum all part of the reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Miftzat filling in the Six-Day War? And filling was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what Film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he does Minche or Mayriv or Shachris. And if he comes in another part of the day, he says, feeling, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisrael, Or all the other projects, the lighting of candles, and other creativity. The rabbi was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, the Rabbin never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you One of the experiences I had which, I must confess to you, marked the rest of my life. Particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the Rabbi discovered that I'm going somewhere, I was called and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report and again with lack of wisdom I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said the rabbis will listen. As is I said, the rabbi should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the rabbi looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am to put it my way. And he says to me, "Alafsegel, since when? Have you made a contract with an rabbinische Leilom for a gringen life?" The Rabbi says to me, "Since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life?" And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, There is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know, I'm as sure as I can be, that right now, as he stands before the Kisei HaKovach, he is doing everything he possibly can to bring about our be Amen.
1: That's my uh, father's eulogy of the Lubavitch Rebbe. It took place uh, back in 1994 during the Shloshim in the month of Av, the first week of the month of Av. Uh, again, back in 1994, and we always uh, include that, the piece in our spoken word format here during the nine days because it is always worth hearing a brilliant summation of the Rebbe's life. Um... And uh, for those who are inclined to study the uh, amazing leadership of great giants, especially in modern history, it is a piece that really gives an amazing perspective in a pretty short period of time, in a condensed condensed lecture, uh, an amazing perspective on what the Rebbe was able to accomplish, and uh, how meaningful he was to the Uh, Jewish community worldwide really something J M the am on a Wednesday morning broadcast third day of uh, August the sixth day in the month of Menachem Av and I thank you all for joining us feel free to comment on the app go to the NSN Nachum Segal Network app for Android and iPhone and comment away Yossi Zweig will present a a three-week style live lunch coming up starting at 11 a.m. Eastern time we will carry that here at the Nachum Segal Network it's a Z-Report live lunch that's carried on many platforms including ours and that will happen uh, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Listener Leia says, Shalom from Scranton. As much as the reason for the non-music format is what it is, I do look forward to it because I learned so much from Rabbi Wine. He's amazing. Thank you. I certainly agree with that. Listener Seema says, I look forward so much to hear Rabbi Wein when Rabbi Wine, he is great. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiW dot RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi and that is how you get in touch with uh, his office, and become a, a member of his uh, uh, of of his many many people that um, have their lives enhanced by some great Jewish history and Torah lectures, Rabbi Beryl Wine. Those of you who want the uh, information regarding the virtual Isaiah Peace Wall uh, above service. It's all virtual this year. Feel free to uh, send me an email, nahum at nahum, nachum at nachum, N A C H U M, at nachumsegal, N A C H U M S E G A L.com. And we will send that information to you. Uh, keep in mind that the OU is presenting a uh, full day of uh, Tisha Bav activities, starting with uh, Kinnis in the middle of the night. I say the middle of the night because they're going to be carrying our by Presentation from Israel. So for us, it'll be the middle of the night. Uh, Rabbi Hauer, Rabbi uh, Weinrib, Rabbi Weil, all part of it. Uh, the NCSY Kumsitz. Information about that is on the Tishabov page. The OU Women's Initiative. Information about their presentation is on the OU's Tishabov page. Go to ou.org slash Tishabov, T-I-S-H-A-B-A-V. Uh, again, it's ou.org slash Tishabov. Go to that website, register now for reminders about what's happening on Sunday, and um, be inspired. Make it part of your day on Sunday, the OU programming, uh, to make your Tisha above even more meaningful than it would be without it. Um, all right, so that's happening this coming Sunday. I remind you that our good friend Jay Bienenfeld is in uh, need of a kidney. We spoke with our friends at Renewal yesterday on the air. Those of you who are um, inclined to find out if you are a match, if you are a uh, potential donor to help save someone's life, r25555 at renewal.org, r25555 at renewal.org, and a reminder, the event, the swabbing event for Dr. J. B. Neinfeld is happening September the 4th out in the five towns. We'll give you more details as we get closer. It's about a month away, but again, those of you who would like to find out more information about kidney donation, see if you're a match. Uh, it's uh, r25555 at gmail.com, r25555 at gmail.com and uh and that's the um and that's the story and we hope everybody out there not only responds but spreads the word to others so that they could find out whether they are a match um Next week, we're back into our regular format. That'll start Monday. After all, Tishabov is actually being observed on the 10th of Av, so we can get right back into our regular format this coming Monday here at uh, JM in the AM and the Nahum Siegel Network. Today is the Amit Yomi Yun that's happening uh, in the five towns. Wishing uh, Amit and everybody good luck on their Yomi Yun today. I am sure there are plenty of people on their way there at the moment as we speak, and many who will be enjoying uh, Dr. Rosenzweig's presentation this morning. Achim Israel and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel. We are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio, around the world the web, and AchimSigil.com, on the Nachomsigl network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up an amazing uh, Wednesday here at JM in the AM. he's Wyg and a Wednesday three-week-style live lunch coming up between 11 and uh, 1 o'clock. Make sure to be tuned in for that. And, of course, uh, if you don't receive our daily thread or our weekly email, you want to make sure to write to uh, Avrami. He'll take care of that for you. af at nachomsegel.com, af at Thanks so much for tuning in. Tomorrow we're back starting at 6 a.m. Have a fabulous Wednesday. Till then, Nachom reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.